morning, church. If you all want to stand to your feet, I'll be reading the scripture for this morning. It's Romans 5, 1 through 8, and it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. God. You may be seated. All right, if you've got your Bibles, you're going to want to keep them there on that passage in Romans. We're going to be looking at one other passage too, but that's kind of like the key one to pay attention to. And again, if, as I said before, if you're someone that grew up in, uh, in church land where you did Advent type things, um, the whole Advent stuff starts with hope. And that, that's huge, but it's also kind of dangerous because people mean different things by hope. Like for example... There's two different kinds of hope. There's like nostalgic hope, and there's also prophetic hope. Nostalgic hope is the kind of hope that's like, man, things were so good back here. I hope that they're like that again. Or things were so good in my family growing up. I hope that my family at Christmas time is going to be the same. That's like nostalgic hope. It used to be good. Maybe it kind of went sideways, it got sketchy. But I'm hoping that what I experienced and loved back in the day gets like rebooted. Prophetic hope is different. Prophetic hope is like you're, you're experiencing something that you're, you're hoping to experience something you've never experienced yet. It's something you're not experiencing right now. So like, man, I've never experienced a good Christmas. I've never experienced a good time with my family. It's always sideways. But I'm hoping in the future I experience something that I'm not experiencing now. Maybe you're in, not in a relationship, but you want to be. Like, oh, I'm single right now. I would love to be in a relationship in the future. I hope... At some point, I'm experiencing what I'm not experiencing now. Maybe you're married, and, you got, and you're like, well, I'd love to have kids. Oh, man, we don't have kids now, but I hope, I have a prophetic hope, hopefully in the future I get to experience having kids. Maybe you have kids, and you're, like, you're hoping that at some point they leave. And so whatever it is, it's a prophetic hope is I'm not experiencing this right now, but I'm hoping in the future there's a new context, a new reality that I get to experience. And here's the weird thing about Christmas. Christmas gift wraps both of them, boom, pew, into one big thing, where all of a sudden we have like this fusion of nostalgic hope and prophetic hope. Christmas is this idea of, again, I want what I once had to be experiencing now. All that, I, I want everything that is bad now to return to good, or I want things that are not to become something that they are. I want, I want something in the future. And so Christmas, and again, every Christmas movie, every Christmas story wraps up these two things as an expectation that perhaps one day we can experience that, which is crazy. But it's also why Christmas movies work. Christmas movies like It's a Wonderful Life. This is my favorite movie. Like seriously, favorite movie. I, I mean, I love all movies, but this movie is my favorite movie of all time. And it's a case study of what hope looks like when it's disappointed. This is George Bailey, so throughout his life. If you guys, has anyone not seen this movie? It's okay, this is a safe place, you can see it. Dude. 
It happens. It's okay. It's homework. All right. If you've ever experienced disappointment, this movie like is incredible because what this movie showcases is George Bailey, who through his entire life, from a kid on, all of his hopes and dreams are disappointed. Everything that he's leaning into, working for, looking towards, doesn't happen, gets passed up, gets given to somebody else. It's not fair, not fair, not fair. And then he gets to the, this point where he's just like ready to lose everything because he recognizes that there's nothing left to hope in. He comes to a point of contemplating ending it all. And, and the, the movie actually starts with a conversation between two angels that you don't see, like a senior angel talking to this like junior angel, Clarence. And Clarence is given the assignment of George Bailey. And he wants to know how he's supposed to help this guy. And so he asks the senior angel, is he sick? Now the senior angel's response always snags me. It got me from the get, like, see, every time I, I watch this, every time I listen to this, this, when I, this line, I always like it, like, it's jarring for some reason. Maybe it doesn't, like, it ricochets off you, but for me, it snags me every time. Is he sick? And the senior angel says, no, worse. And I, I always, I'm like, what? What's worse than being sick? Like, some of you went through COVID and you laughed it off. You did a lap around your house and you were fine. Some of you, COVID was no joke, right? Some of you barely, like, literally barely got out of it, and some of us have lost people. This past year, some people, whether it was COVID or, or something else, lost people that are no longer around the table at Thanksgiving. And so the idea of, of something being worse than sickness is always like, what? What could possibly be worse than being sickness? And so the senior angel follows up this question, is he sick? No worse. He's discouraged. And again, that always shocks me. Because he adequately and rightly says that discouragement, depression, that anxiety-riddled panic that comes from just being disconnected from like, this is not right, is even worse than sickness. Someone who is doing, like a counselor, who is doing a study of the theme of discouragement in that movie put, said that this way, discouragement creeps in and holds the heart for ransom. It projects a sense of being outnumbered, overwhelmed, and undervalued. It's a real struggle. Some even get to the point where they act on the thought that the world is better off without them. The counselor continues, but even if we don't act on it, that lie has knocked on the door of more minds than anyone admits. And many of us have been there. Some of you are there right now. And whether that's where you're at now or not, you realize that honestly, when we come into the Christmas season, we have two types of people. We have the people that are like giddy, ecstatic. I mean, they've been waiting for Christmas glitter for like three months. Some of you freaks in here, are that's you. That's me. <laughs> and some of you are like, dude, seriously, the Starbucks cups are red. Who cares? And you're like, let's just get to January. I'm done. I'm already over it. But I think a part of the reason is that, I mean, people are either like jaded towards Christmas because they've, they've seen these hopes disappoint. They've seen these expectations be way too large for what Christmas delivers. Or, or other people, they're so excited and ecstatic about Christmas, but Christmas never lives up to their hopes and dreams or their family never quite gets together or the things that were bad never truly come together the way that they're supposed to. No matter how many Hallmark Christmas movies you watch, it never resolves within 50 minutes in your family. And so this is something that we recognize a, a part of the reason why, that we as a culture are so discouraged at this time of year. 
Some of us are true believers, but we end up disappointed. Other people are disappointed from the get-go because we know what it's going to be. And the thing is, is that it's not that our expectations are set too high. They're actually set horribly low and misplaced. We've put our expectations and our hope in the people that we're around or our conditions and circumstances. And we put high or mediocrely high expectations in those, and they always disappoint. The reality is that our hope and our expectation needs to be rooted in Jesus. That the Christmas hope actually says there is a nostalgic hope. You see, there once was good. God created us in good, but it got broken. But God didn't want that to be the end of the story, and so he sent Jesus. And that happened, and he is making all things good. And he promises in the future something that we're not experiencing right now. In the book of Revelation, it says that he's going to come back and make all things new. So that, we haven't experienced that yet, but that's down the road. So as Christians who are 2,000 years out from the manger, we recognize that the Advent season is recognizing that God became man that as a baby in a manger. And he grew up and he died on a cross and he rose from the grave. And that's amazing. That's our first advent. But we're still in the season of advent because now we're waiting for God to keep his second promise. And the second promise is that he's going to return. And that's our hope. That's the Christmas hope. But it's hard to keep our brains fixed on that, right? How many, okay, this is the key passage for this whole series, is this. It's from Hebrews. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And the author goes on from there. But let's stop here just really quick. Let's just say this together, just as a group. Fix your eyes on Jesus. How many of you are done mowing the lawn for the season? Like you're done. You're done. You've done your final. You winterize your lawnmower. If that's a thing, I don't know. I probably should do that. I'm not sure. Okay, how many of you are like... I got one more in me. I'm going to do one more. Yeah, okay. This is the weird thing about Midwesterners I, I, that I'm learning. And I, now I'm, I'm a participant in it because it's like I've learned that on my street, there's like merit badges invisibly given to any homeowner who has the last lawnmower job of the season and the first lawnmower job of the season. There's something weird about it. But like uh, many of you are like ready for, one, ready for one more. But for in my house, this is the best thing. I haven't mowed the lawn in years because I've got kids. And that might seem sick, but it's beautiful. It is a beautiful thing to have boys that mow the lawn and, and we threaten them if they don't. And thing, it's great. Now, here's the thing. The cool thing about it is that um, when, when teaching them how to mow the lawn, I taught them something that my dad never taught me. And this, this is one of those things where most everything I know that's good, someone taught me, but this is something that I stumbled upon. And many of you probably picked up on it yourself, or maybe your mom or your dad taught you this when you were mowing the lawn. But when you're mowing the lawn, if you've got that first stripe that's dividing your property and the, the, your neighbor's property, how do you get that lawn? straight. Like, what do you have to do? That. The reality is, it's like, and I, I realized that because every time I was mowing the lawn between my, my lawn and my neighbor's lawn who actually cares about his lawn, I was like, it was always like, Wah. it was wonky. It was all over the place. And so I realized that the only way that I'm going to be able to actually get this thing straight is to like find something that I could stare at, like the hydrant, the fire hydrant that's on our property or the pine tree that's on the other side. And I'm just going to go ahead and like stare at it. And I'm just going to like fix my eyes on it and keep staring at it like I'm obsessed with it. Like I'm going to throw down with this fire hydrant. I'm staring it down the whole way. And then I get to the fire hydrant and I turn around and it's an amazingly impeccably straight line. It's amazing. And, and if I don't do that, I'm all over the place. But if I do that, it's great. So the author of Hebrews says, if you want to have this hope, if you want to have this reality that we have in Jesus, fix your eyes on him. And the reason that he says fix your eyes on him is because we don't do that. We've got ADHD attention span when it comes to fixing our eyes on things. We're looking at a bunch of different things all over the place. We're like kitty cats with a laser on the wall. We're like, 
all over the place. And he says, that's normal, but check this out. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And then he qualifies that. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you, let's read this together, won't grow weary and lose heart. That's discouragement. Everyone in this room walked in this room wounded. Or maybe you walked in this room recovering from wounds. But the reality is that we grow weary and lose heart. Discouragement is real. It's a thing. And the truth is, is that if we don't, if we don't find a way to navigate through life that's not building and baking our hope on something better than simply our conditions and circumstances, we're going to continue growing weary and lose heart. And scripture says, fix your eyes. So what we're going to be doing today is just looking at that, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And by doing that, we're able to choose real love over discouragement. Not like artificial knockoff love. I'm talking knockoff hope, but real hope that, that's the opposite of discouragement. And we're going to be looking at, at that passage that Maddie read to us earlier. So Romans starts off in that passage um, talking through the reality that if we want to experience real hope, we can because we've really experienced discouragement. This is not like um, if you're really strong and you're consistently encouraged, then you'll be encouraged and you'll have hope. It's like, no, if you're actually, if you've experienced discouragement, you're golden. You've got the seed of what it means to have real hope. And this is what he says. He says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. If you've got a Bible in front of you, I want to encourage you to, to underline it. If you've got a neighbor who's got a Bible, steal it, underline it for them, because this is like important stuff. We, a lot of us do this. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. God's victorious. He wins. Whoop, whoop. We're on his side. That's awesome. But we don't do this. Not only so, but we also glory in what? Who does that? I just got broken up with. Yay! My grades are garbage. I'm, there's no way I'm going to be able to pull them out by the end of the semester. Woo! I don't even know if our whole family is going to be together this Christmas. Yeah, well, that might be. But, you know, the truth is that, honestly, we have all these different things where we look at as sufferings. Nobody does this. Sick people do this. Delusional people do this. And Christians. Christians do that. You're either out of your mind to celebrate sufferings or you're a Christian. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, not just the good stuff, not just the victorious times. Why? Because we know that suffering produces. For a Christian, suffering is never like, like a cul-de-sac of pain. It's like, a, like an end of the road. Never. Not for a Christian. For a Christian, suffering is not the end. It produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, what? Hope. If you're someone who's experiencing discouragement, you have the capacity as a Christian to say, I still hold on to hope. And here's the thing. A lot of times, if you're going through a hard time, you look at a lot of people in your world with a little bit of judgment because you're like, they don't get me. They don't understand what the pain I'm going through. And th that, that might be accurate. But the truth is that every single human being has known this. Whether you're like, a, you're the widower in a nursing home, laying in your bed, weeping because you are so lonely and there's no one visiting you. We are 13 years old and you've just experienced rejection for the first time in a palpable way. And your tears are just coming down your face. Or you're seven years old and you're struggling as you're going through school wondering why you're not getting things the other kids are getting and you weep. Or you're two years old 
You're wondering why all these ginormous people around you don't get the fact that you're just hungry and you just cry. Now, obviously, there's scalable pain, and people go through much heavier pain than other people, for sure. But every single tear that has been that is dropped off of a person's face in this lifetime resonates the reality. Something is wrong with this world. This is off. There, there, there should be a better way than this. And, and for some reason, it's just not right. So here's the crazy thing about Christians, that we actually can say our hope isn't destroyed by our suffering. It's fierce. And it's resilient in the midst of our suffering. Our hope is not conditional upon good times or good circumstances or good family relationships. We have a hope that transcends all of that. No matter what garbage you're going through, you've got a hope that defies all that. In fact, the fact that you are experiencing discouragement gives you the capacity to hope even deeper. For the same reason that someone can really know what it's like to be full and enjoy food who's known hunger. Someone who, who, who can actually experience, like knowing what it's, how, how awesome it is to be at peace, who's had a whole life of chaos. Someone who, who actually knows, what, can appreciate the fact that we've got the, the finances to pay the bills, who's known what it's like to not know what that's like at all. The lack of something causes the capacity to more appreciate what you have. And as a Christian, we understand that we're following Jesus, who's the, the suffering servant. Suffering is never the end of the equation for us. But not only, not only is that, not only is it real hope that we can really hope because we've really experienced discouragement, but we can really hope because we know that we're loved right now. Not abstract, but right now by a promise-keeping God. A lot of us, um, the reason that we're reluctant to hope is because we've been disappointed by other people. We've, like, we've put our hope in someone and they let us down. We, we trusted someone, and they totally, like, it backfired. When um, I was a youth pastor, and, and Julie, was, was, Julie and I we were doing youth work here at this church back, like, like, 20 years ago, we made this mistake of investing hope and trust in someone we shouldn't have. Uh, we were out of town. We were out of state, actually, and we asked two high schoolers to watch the house, our house for us, which is just stupid. I don't know what we were thinking, but then we said this was a good idea, especially because of the people that we asked. But we, we asked them to watch our house, and I don't know if they were even old enough to drive yet. They might have been, but they found our car keys. Oh, I know. They find our car keys, and they decide, what if we take a joyride? Now, again, I, we're actually, we were in California at this time, and so we're like 2,000 miles away from this craziness that's happening, but they find our car keys, and they decide to go on a, on a joyride with our car. And not only that, they're, they're driving around, they realize, oh, wow, this is a sweet field, and it just rained. We can go mudding. In, like, my 84 Impala, this garbage car, and, and it's like, all of a sudden, like, they, they go, and they go, and they got stuck. And it, like, it was, like, it was just absolute ridiculous. And I remember, like, we, when we came back to our house, we look at our car, and it's, like, mud all over the side. And there's, like, this two-by-four in the yard that someone had helped use to get them out of the mud. It was just craziness. But it was, like, one of those things, we will never do that again. And we didn't. And for some of you, that's the same thing you've got with hope. I will never invest hope in someone else again because I know what it's like to give trust, to give hope, and then to see that backfire and blow up in my face. I won't do that. I feel like I, I have been put to shame too many times, been made the fool too many times. So Paul's like, yeah, no, I get that. But hope with God is different. In fact, he says this, and hope, divine hope, gospel hope, godly hope does not put us to shame. You've been totally rejected. You've been made a fool by all the people you've trusted in your world. We get that. But God's not like that. 
Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's the greatest thing. If you're someone who's hoping, hope gets lonely. Hope, hoping gets lonely because you're hoping for something to be completed that's not complete right now. And the patience for that is really, really difficult. Hoping gets lonely. And so Paul says, I get that. What you need to realize is that you've got God's love and God's spirit inside of you. You are not alone. To hope is to be lonely, but you are not. You're not alone. You're not alone. You have God with you. And the thing that he keeps on ricocheting in your heart is not judgment. It's his love. And that is so incredibly important. This is a world, we live in a world right now that that really needs this because we live in a world that has been disappointed and feels disconnected from people. But we can really hope because we know that we're loved right now by a God who keeps his promises. The promise God has given you is that he will return and all that is wrong will be made right. That's the promise. You could bank on that. And you can experience the love that God has for you right now. Um, there was a TikTok that was going around, and it was this guy. Has anyone seen this? This dude, um, blindfolded, and he has this sign, if you, are re- if you are depressed and no one seems to care, hug me. Has anyone seen this? Like, I, it was like, there's the 30-second little TikTok. And so this dude, first off, I don't know where he's standing, but it's some public place. And, like, he's got this, like, he's got his blindfold on, he's got the sign on, up. And I don't know how many people are like, oh, that's the type of guy I'd go up and hug. Because when I see that, I'd be like, oh, you know, that, but, but this guy's out there, and it's, it's kind of cool. Because in this 30-second TikTok, this guy's got this deal, and he's blindfolded, and all of a sudden, pff, someone comes up and gives him a hug. And he's like, oh. And he says, uh, are, you, do you, are you not feeling cared for right now? And the first person that comes up to him says, that they've got in the, in the recording, says to him, simply says, actually, um, I don't feel cared for at all. Not being cared for right now is a really good description of my world. And then it cuts to the second person that, that runs on up and gives them a hug. And then he says, oh, are you, not, are you feeling discouraged right now? Are you feeling depressed right now? Are you not feeling loved? And the second person the, uh, this is a lady, and she says that she feels so discouraged and depressed because she's lost her dad. Now, you, many of us this past year, we've lost somebody. And, or, or in the past couple years, you haven't. Or if you haven't, you know what it's like that when you lose someone, everyone is there for you. They're there for you like at the funeral. They're there for you for, in the weeks after. But they forget about you because they're human. As soon as their life gets complicated or as soon as this season comes around, one of the reasons that people go into the Christmas season so, with such struggles and so like lack of hope and so discouraged is because they know that they're bringing into this season a lot of pain that other people aren't paying attention to or caring about because they've got their parties and their family gatherings and everything else that's going on in their world that they're trying to wrap their brain around. And so it feels incredibly alone. So the second person says, I, I've lost someone and I feel so alone right now. The third person that comes up, he says, why do you need a hug? What is, what's discouraging you? And she says, I feel so stressed and tired. I just cannot breathe with all of the expectations that everyone in my world has put upon me. And he hugs her. And he says, you need to know that you are loved right now, just who you are. The thing I love about that is that he said that. That's great. But why is this, why has he got a blindfold on? I think the reason he's got a blindfold on is because he wants to let everyone know, hey, I'm safe. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to, if you're coming up, I'm not going to go, ugh, I'm not going to hug you. Or, ugh, seriously, I don't know. 
Let me hide the sign. I think he's got a blindfold on because he's letting everyone know I'm accessible. I'm not even going to judge you for one second. You come forward and you can, and that's amazing. But here's the amazing thing about God. God has every reason to judge us. He sees us. He knows exactly what we've done, exactly what we've gone through, exactly what we're currently involved with. And he doesn't drop the sign. He doesn't love us in spite of the wrong that we've done. He sees it and he loves us through it. He loves us anyway. And that's the reality that we have. And that's, that's actually the, the third reason that we can really hope. Because our hope is not, it's our, Jesus' future promise, the promise that he's given us that we're hoping in, Jesus' future promise isn't banking on my present performance. Jesus' future promise is not banking on my present performance. Jesus' promise to come back and make all things new is not banking on the fact that you keep being a strong Christian or banking on the fact that you're going to continue to grow in your faith. Jesus' future promise isn't banking on any of that. And Paul says so. Look what he says. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still what? Powerless. We got nothing to prove. We're not like moral beings that are doing these awesome moral things. We're powerless. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. God, okay, here's the thing. Most of our relationships in this world are for people that we respect, who are like us, or who we can get something from. I love you. I love you, and I'm falling in love with you because you are so wonderful. I'm going to hire you because you're so skilled. I'm going to maintain a friendship with you because you are so trustworthy. Like, it's always that type of thing. Is this person like me? Can I get something out of this? And yet God dies for the ungodly. God gives his life for the people who are the least like him. And that's amazing. But that's, that's the reality. Everyone in your world is going to be trying to draw near to you because of what, how awesome you are. The gospel starts off with by saying, we are the furthest from God and he loves us anyway. And then he says this. This is great. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, which is true. Like how many of you have died for a righteous person? Not many. Though for a good person, some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. God's love is different from every other person. God's love is different than any other relationship in this world that can go up and down based on performance. God's love for you is not built on that. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His prom- he promises us that he will return for us, and that promise is not based on our ability to faithfully keep our word to him but on his ability to faithfully die for us. And he did that. And that's what we celebrate. The reason we have hope is because as much as we know ourselves to be disappointing and the people around us to be disappointing, God isn't. We've got the ability to, to step into that. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to actually like really, really wrap our brain around that by just saying some of these passages throughout Scripture that talk about our hope. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your hope. So if everyone could stand, we're going to read these passages together, read them out loud, and just look at the theme of hope that is perpetually through Scripture that if you're a follower of God, you can own. Let's say this together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes in what they already have? But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. 
Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Folks, this is for you. This is for you. You could go through this season radically different if this is yours. When I was talking to Rylan about, about the whole lawn mowing thing before Saturday service, I wanted to make sure that he actually, that I wasn't going to say, I taught my kids how to mow the lawn. And then he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. Never did. You never said that once. So I said, how do you make a straight line? How did I teach you to make a straight line? So you, you look at something, and you keep on staring at it, and, and you can actually make a straight line. Like, oh, good. I was like, yes. And he said, but I'll be honest, Dad, I don't always do that. Sometimes between here and that thing I'm staring at, I get distracted by what I'm listening to, and I get really like involved with what I, the music I'm listening to, and all of a sudden like I'm starts doing this. That's all of our story. In our journey, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, it's human to get distracted by whatever's going on inside of our head, the voices that we're listening to, the things that we're distracted, good things and bad. As believers, the call is to continue to return, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That we can actually consider him who is oppressed by such sinful people so we don't grow weary and lose heart. That could be yours. Up here in the front on the stage, um, we have um, these uh, reminder ornaments. And the reason that we, we, we're doing this is because we want you to enter into this season different, perhaps, than previous seasons. We want you to enter into this season f- with your eyes fixed on Jesus. And so what we, we've done is we've, made, we've had enough up here for every uh, family to have one. Or if you're here all by yourself, this is for you. If you're here with one other person from your household, this is for you. If you're here with a huge like, like group of people, this is for you. And what I want to encourage you to do here at the end in the last two songs of worship is to simply come forward to dedicate yourselves to fix your eyes on Jesus. You and, and your family, like you guys come forward and you huddle up and then you simply pray. And this is what you're praying. Jesus, help us. Not, nothing complicated here. We want this to be as simple as possible. Direct to God as possible. Jesus, help us fix our eyes on you this Christmas season. You know your context. You know the drama in your world. You know what that means for your family. But someone in your group just simply praying, Jesus, help us fix our eyes on you this Christmas season. And just if you're in a group, just figure out who's going to pray. Maybe it's a kid. Maybe it's the mom. Maybe it's dad. If you're here by yourself, you don't even have to worry about that. It's you. And then just pray, Jesus, help us to fix our eyes on you this Christmas season. Take the time up here just to pray that. Huddle up. And then go back to your seat and continue in worship. But before you go back to your seat, pick up another one. Pick up one more for someone in your world that needs to fix their eyes on Jesus. And just give this to them as a gift sometime this week. And you, you could just make it a gift. You could just say, hey, um, you know, this is just to remind you during this Christmas season to fix your eyes on Jesus. We could get like totally sidetracked by so many things, but this is just help to remind, helping to remind you um, of the way that to actually get to this season radically different than before. 
If you want, you could tack on to that, hey, the next three weeks at our church, we're talking about some of the frustrations that we typically run into headfirst in the season and how to overcome them. Come and have a seat next to me. We'll grab food afterwards and give this to them as an invitation. Whether it's a gift or it's a gift at an invitation, pick this up before going back to your seat for someone in your world who needs to fix their eyes on Jesus. And I want this to be something that defines this year differently than previous years. So we roll into January with this on our heart, this as our reality. So what I want to do is just want to pray over you before we, we give the invitation for you to come forward as families and individuals that are here to do that. So let's go ahead and pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for mission. I thank you for the fact that they are dedicated to your mission. Lord, I thank you for the fact that they know that their connection to you allows them to have one of the greatest gifts that a human being could possibly possess, which is hope. But there's so many things in this world, God, that challenges that hope, that complicates that hope, that causes that hope to be up for grabs. So Lord, we're asking that you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, focused on you, not distracted by all the other voices that are going on. And Lord, I pray that that isn't just merely something that we internalize and experience, but that, that impacts everyone else in our household, everyone else in our school, everyone else in our workplace, and even on our block, that as we gather, as we show up to parties, that we're coming in, not simply with our presence, but with the presence of God of hope and joy and peace and love, God, that that comes from you because of what you've done for us. I pray that this moment is one of those milestones in the individual's lives in this church, the couples in this church, and the families in this church. And we'll give you the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take part in that now.